Timothy Joseph. This is Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host, Timothy Joseph. And I will start out by saying uh, that I want to thank all the people that have listened to the podcast. We've had some success, rather good success, in the last few weeks. The interview with uh, Joe Wyatt was very well received. A lot of downloads. A lot of downloads on some of the other episodes. The one about Darius McCollum. A lot of success with the with the podcast that covered hostage negotiation. Remember that one? So we've I've gotten some praise, people from all over, from Mexico, from different parts of the United States, uh, liked and appreciated the podcast and has sent me messages on it. Pretty good conversation today. And it has to do with a lecture I saw in the library in uh, Muskegon, uh, that's the name of the town, M-U-S-K-E-G-O-N, Muskegon, Michigan, by author Tobin T. Book. The book, one of his many books, True Crime, Michigan, The State's Most Notorious Criminal Cases. True Crime, Michigan examines crime in the state and explores the landmark cases of robbery, mob activity, and murder that have received national attention. Included here are accounts of Andrew Kehoe and the Bath School Massacre, a case I had not heard about, by the way, until just maybe a couple years ago. The Rise and Fall of the Purple Gang in Detroit, the Michigan victims of Lonely Hearts killers Beck and Fernandez, and the mysterious disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, and the criminal career of Coral Watts, the serial killer Coral Watts. So I called up Tobin, emailed him actually, and he called me, and had a really good interview about true crime, true crime writing, and the interest in true crime. So this is True Crime Michigan. Some of the themes in here apply to any state and perhaps any country about why people are interested in true crime why crime is fascinating from a uh, historical perspective and just the rather unique cases that we cover. If you like what you heard, go ahead and write us back and go ahead and like it on the Facebook page and uh, let us know about any future topics you'd like to hear about. Once again, thank you to our listeners and let's go ahead and listen to the interview with Tobin Book. Hello, Tobin. Yeah, hi, Tim. How are you this evening? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for calling. Sure. If uh, you're all ready to go, can I just go ahead and start the interview? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Can you pronounce your last name for us? Yes, Book. Okay, Book. That's exactly the way I was going to say it. Right? Yeah. Really? Not yes. too many people say it right, so that's <laughs> been great. <laughs> How else do they pronounce it? B U H K. I get bunk, believe it or not. Okay. Buck. Puke. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of lot of different variations of it. Yeah. But uh, people don't generally get it get it right. Okay. So. Welcome to the show. I uh, enjoyed your lecture at the library in Muskegon. Thank you. I have seen your books in the, the local library. How many books have you written? Um, Eleven. Eleven. And they're all yeah. on true crime? All crime related, yeah. Right. Yeah. So you are a uh, a teacher of history. Yeah, and English. I teach English too. Okay. And uh, how long have you been a have you been a teacher? I've been a teacher for twenty four years professionally. So oh. I've been around for a little while. Wow. You must like the profession then. I do. Yeah. I mean, it's just there are a lot of changes that have taken place in the profession, and you know, you know how it is. Not all right. changes are good. Right. For sure. Um, you know, at the state level, there's a lot of stuff that's happened that I wish they could sort of undo, but mm-hmm. uh, I do. I do like the profession. Very good. Uh, what led you to write about true crime? <laughs> when I was, uh, I know the Kent County Medical Examiner well. Mm-hmm. He's a friend of mine. 
and there was a period of time where I think he was a little irritated with something that is known as the CSI effect. And what happens is you and I and others wind up getting conditioned by the type of, uh, by the TV we watch. So if you watch, like, I was, it's at the time I was watching a lot of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And if you watch a show like that, you look at the medical examiner, you look at what takes place in the, in the, in the televised reality, they can get these in cases wrapped up, they can get uh, DNA evidence, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff, and they can do this all in 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately what happens is, is because that becomes our reality, uh, a layperson's reality, and because we serve the juries, that can lead to something known as the CSI effect, mm-hmm. where... Um, you know, the, the most insidious uh, aspect of the CSI effect would be, it, it, you know, a juror who is willing to accept shoddy testimony from somebody just because he's got a few letters behind his name in a lab coat. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, my uh, my friend and and, and soon to be co-author decided that it might be fun to kind of write a book uh, describing what really takes place in a morgue with without the televised reality, with you know, unvarnished. And so I spent a year as a morgue volunteer, got my gloves bloody, helped out with autopsies, mm. and wrote two books about it. And, and so those are the first two books. And then my, I love history, always have had a love for history. So sooner or later, my interest in forensics and my love of history was going to come together, and I have been writing about historic true crime ever since. Just curious about how long does it take to do a typical autopsy? Depends on the medical examiner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Cole tends to be a little bit more deliberate and a um, couple hours, mm-hmm. uh, hour and a half, two hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they can do them much quicker than that. It, it just depends on what the nature of the situation is. So, for example, if there's been a, a victim who's been shot 32 times, they'll have to probe every single bullet wound. The same would be true for stabbing wounds. And so autopsies like that can go on for a really, really long time, hours and hours, because they'll have to go and probe the depth and and, uh, and uh, trajectory of each bullet wound. Mm-hmm. So it just, just depends. Or if it's a heart attack, uh, it might be uh, much quicker than that. Mm-hmm. So generally about an hour and a half, two hours. Uh-huh. Uh, do they take the brain out and weigh it? I've seen videos like that. Yeah, they take it out and they... Um, they cross-section everything. Everything comes out, everything gets cross-sectioned. Mm-hmm. My. Everything. Yeah, that must be interesting. Yeah, uh, and I think I think in, in the days of past, when they did autopsies, they basically didn't do everything like that. I, mean, I think there was a time where if there was a brain injury, they, they looked at the brain, and if there was a stab to the chest, they looked at the chest. Mm-hmm. And maybe there are some jurisdictions where they still function that way. I know with the, with the Kent County folks, and this would be true of the Ottawa County folks, too. They uh, they do complete autopsies from stem to stern. Everything comes out, everything gets cross-sectioned. Mm-hmm. So they are complete. Excellent. And, and when you talk about Kent and Ottawa counties, of course you're talking about the counties of the great state of Michigan. Yes. And your book, yep. uh, one of your books, is True Crime Michigan, which uh, it, it, this looks like, to, over, going over all your books, kind of a sampling of uh, some of the more interesting cases you've encountered through history. Is that a good description of it? Or Yeah, it's kind of a bloody history of, of uh, Michigan. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a sampling of the state's history through some of its most notorious criminal cases. We have certainly had some interesting ones here, and, and I'm going to focus on... Uh, well, the ones that caught my eye, and we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about, but I do want to ask about Chapter 2 about uh, Strang Circumstances, the murder of Michigan's Beaver Island King. What can you tell us about that case? The uh, So it goes back to Mormon history. Uh, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram, I think his name was, um, were in Illinois. They they uh, were taken to a local jail. I, I don't know, some trumped-up charge. The Mormons were uh, 
constantly being harassed by other other groups that didn't like the way that we're going about their religious business and and uh, Joseph Smith and his and his brother I think it was got dragged out of a jail and basically they were going to lynch him but I think they shot him or beat him to death or something and what happened is the Mormon group splintered from there the uh, part of the group followed Brigham Young a bigger chunk of them uh, the bulk of them followed Brigham Young to Utah where they uh, established the colony. But a few of them traveled north to Beaver Island, where they established a group under James Strang. Mm-hmm. And Strang was very much like uh, Joseph Smith. He had claimed to have been visited by an angel and uh, had dug up some some plates with some mysterious writing on it. And, and, Joseph, and Joseph Smith being the founder of Mormonism. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know I don't know just too much about it, but Smith uh, was... Uh, in, in Mormon belief, was uh, visited by an angel who took him to a tree, and they unearthed some plates that was supposedly the uh, the history of the twelfth tribe of Israel that had come to the New World. Mm-hmm. And uh, a- anyways, that that became the Book of Mormon. Right. So, so anyways, James Strang establishes a group on Beaver Island, and I think that. It's, it's often reported that he declared himself king of Beaver Island. I don't, I don't think that's quite accurate. I mm-hmm. think that he declared himself king of his church on Beaver Island. Right. Which, it, it might sound like splitting hairs, but... Um, anyways, so James Strang was uh, the leader of this colony on Beaver Island, and I think that they acquired a lot of territory on Beaver Island. Some people say they acquired it through some underhanded means. Again, it, it gets into how people felt about Mormons at the time and the kind of discrimination the community felt. But so, so Beaver, one way or another. Go uh, ahead. I'm sorry, yeah. Beaver Island, it's a small island in Lake Michigan? Yeah, it's northern Lake Michigan. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's so, Lake, Lake Michigan is kind of like a long fin. Mm-hmm. It's toward the top of it. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty sizable. I mean, it's got an airport on it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not, it's not, sizable compared to, say, Cuba, right. right, or something like that. But it's a fairly big, I think it's the biggest island in Lake Michigan. Um, it's considerably larger than, say, uh, Mackinac Island. Uh, uh, it's got population. Right. Uh, yeah, so it, it had a population at that time, even when Strang and his followers came to that island. Yeah, yeah. And uh, did, yep. it, did it cause uh, conflict when Strang and, and then they were called the been referred to as the Strangites, came to that island, and he declared himself king of the church? Yeah, there was definitely some some consternation there. I don't, I don't know exactly how much, I think, because the way the Mormons were treated by other groups, it's just hard to find anything that isn't uh, varnished, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, a lot of the opinions are real biased against them. Um, but there's been, it has been said that a lot of the lot of the territory that they wound up accumulating on, on Beaver Island was accumulated through underhanded means. But again, like I said, that's just kind of a varnished opinion, so it's hard to know for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do know is that um, he uh, was the, the government was very iffy about him because they basically felt like he had sort of declared himself king of of a piece of property within the United States, and we don't have kings here, right? So the, the, there was a lot of uh, it was a, there was a, a lot of animosity, I think, for the U.S. government towards James Strang. And um, funny thing is, is, is his demise came down to the fact that he had put a a uh, law on the uh, kind of a dress code on people on the island, and this was not well received. And so some of his own followers conspired to shoot him and. It was said that they shot him in full view of a U.S. naval vessel with the crew on the deck watching it, that they uh, may have even possibly known about it at that time and turned a blind eye, mm-hmm. simply because it was in the government's best interest to have him out of the picture. And again, that's just hard to say when you're talking about how far back we are in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, reporting and newspapers not being quite like they are mm-hmm. today. So, uh, yeah, interesting history. The, the, were the 
perpetrators prosecuted? Yeah, I think I think the guy who shot him was a guy named Bedford. Mm-hmm. And I think they were prosecuted, but I think that they, if they did any time at all, they were basically let off with a with a with a uh, hand slap. I'd have to go back and look at the book. Uh, Out of I, all the cases, that that's the one that I'm probably the slayer with, to be honest with you. Well, uh, what I read in there was that, uh, or I read it somewhere that they got a, a fine of a dollar and twenty five cents. Yeah, that sounds about right. Hand yeah. slap, right? So it, <laughs> uh, it could. And Strang was, uh, was, did he serve as a uh, state representative at one point? I believe that he did, yes. Yeah. Smart man. I think he was a smart guy. I yeah. don't think you were talk, talking about a dolt, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and do, do you think that, uh, just what we know about the case, if this hadn't, had he not been assassinated, could he be uh, like a, a well-known religious figure in American history at this point? Um... I I I have I would tend to say no. Okay. I would tend to say that he would have probably been looked at more as like a crackpot. Okay. You know, kind of like the House of David. Are you familiar with that? Right. That, that you know, people don't generally look at that. I, I'm generalizing now. I mean, there are House of David followers around there around today. Right. But I think at the time it was kind of considered to be a cult. Are there still Strangites to this day? I think there might be. Yeah, yeah. I had read some place that they had relocated south. Okay. Um, after the, the the assassination or execution, if you will, depending yeah. on whose perspective you want to look at. <laughs> yeah. Um, another case that uh, I uh, I wanted to do an episode on this on on the show. I'm not too far from there. Is is Bath, Michigan? Andrew Kehoe and the Bath, Michigan massacre. Yes. Yeah, we can talk about that. Episode. I, I wanted to mention one other thing about Strang. Go ahead. What's interesting about religious leaders, um, co-leaders, if you will, is if you look at their personalities, sometimes they have really strong, overwhelming personalities that, um, as a result, people are very easily manipulated by them. Right. And they uh, there's a cult of personality that develops. Right, and I'm not I'm not drawing any particular parallels here, but if you well, I mean, if you were to look at say, um, Jonestown, right, uh, you know, uh, what 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 was that fellow's name? Jim uh, Jim Jones. Jim Jones, yeah. yeah, and then of course you've got uh, David Koresh, right? right. And, and these are people who there was a cult of personality that developed around them, and they they were seen as almost like messiah figures. Mm-hmm. Um, among their followers, and that has a lot to do with how the strength of their personality. It seems like I've read of, uh, or seen some documentaries about some other cult leaders like that, where their personalities are just very, very strong. Like you, could, you could probably do a really interesting comparative study of the personality traits of those types. And strength, to me, might follow fall into that kind of category. Right. Um, but again, of course, you know, there's religious belief aside, right? So... Um, yeah, the Kehoe Bath Massacre, uh, from what I understand about Andrew Kehoe, from, from my study of that case, he seems to be kind of a garden-variety sociopath. Mm-hmm. They, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have used that term back then. In fact, it's kind of funny, when he blew himself up, they uh, recovered the skull. And there's an advertisement, not an advertisement, there's a news article in the Toledo Blade which covered that case in depth. And they mentioned that they were going to take the skull to the University of Michigan for a study by the anthropology department. And the article goes on to talk about how uh, it could be that she basically was a throwback to a primitive age who had become confounded by living under modern laws, and he snapped. So the article is essentially opining that he might have been like a Cro-Magnon man that somehow made it into the 20th century. And... And, that that sounds it, it, it sounds like a throwback or a throwback or uh, popular at the time. That you ever hear of the ideas of criminologist Caesar Lombroso? He was an Italian. You know, the name rings a bell. So we talking about like phrenology now? Yeah, yeah. It was it was his belief that somehow uh, the parts of early man, the genetics of early man, were cropping up among people that we call criminals now. And he even had. You know, examinations of the skull size and the brow and, and so that's forth. What, that's what that is, then. I mean, it's kind of interesting because, like, I, I wrote a chapter in my True Time Civil War book about the Lincoln conspirators. Uh-huh. And 
the source about that case is a Baltimore reporter by the name of Ben Perlipore, whose who's, uh, transcript of the trial is even better than the, than the official transcript because he witnessed it all and he's able to talk, give you a pretty idea of the back and forth and the, the way things are said to one another, whereas a cold hard transcript won't really convey that kind of, that kind of uh, sentiment. But he talks about how he watches these, uh, he observes these, defendants in the dock, and he describes them, the way he describes them, Lewis Payne in particular, he talks about them in terms like their outward appearance can reflect what their inward vibe is, right. like sinister-looking, sinister brow ridge. Right. And it's interesting because by 1927, when uh, Andrew Kehoe did what he did, you would think that that age of phrenology had passed, but uh-huh. um, apparently there were some remnants of it still. So uh, apparently there was a school of phrenology in the United States up until I think the 1960s. Oh really? It went it, that late? Yeah, and I wow. th- it, there was one in Europe, Great Britain maybe up until the 1970s. I I'd heard that before. Okay, wow. So really late then. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, some habits well some belief systems die hard, I I guess. Uh so tell us a little bit about what Andrew Kehoe did. Andrew Kehoe was doing some uh, custodial work to the Bath School, which was a two-wing school that had double floors. And uh, he had planted Hercules dynamite, some other explosive devices in the walls beneath the floor, and he had that attached to timing mechanisms that were uh, set to go off with the 8 o'clock bell. So the idea is, on on the appointed day, the 8 o'clock bell, morning bell would go off, the timing mechanism would uh, blow up the explosive devices and bring the school down. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely what happened. He, um, But the the first wing, so the bath school was configured with, it was like an, it was an L-high building, so it was, I think, K-6 in one wing, and, mm-hmm. uh, and or, or maybe K-8 in one wing and 9-12 in the other wing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if, if memory serves me, a lot of the... the, the Nine, twelve kids were gone that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it didn't really matter, but when the eight o'clock bell went off, the uh, the the explosion took down the whole elementary wing of the building, and the top floor collapsed in on the bottom one. But the second explosion, set of explosions, never went off because it, it, apparently the uh, the trembling from the first explosion was so severe that it caused a disruption in its timing mechanism for the second one. Mm-hmm. So that basically spared that second wing entirely. So people of Bath, from my understanding, were racing to the rubble, and they could hear some people, of course, were killed on impact. Others were buried, um, partially buried. They could hear the screams, and they started climbing through the rubble. Meanwhile, Kehoe drives up in his truck in a running board. He had uh, the, the superintendent, Emery... And it's H-U-Y-C-K, Hike, mm-hmm. maybe it's pronounced. Um, he, of course, knew Kehoe, so Kehoe, uh, he came over to to say hello, and he put his foot on the running board. At that instant, Kehoe had taken a, a shotgun or a rifle, and he had uh, turned to the back seat where he had loaded the, the car up, the truck up with a bunch of rusty metal from the farm and had some dynamite in there and he used the gun to explode the dynamite it turned his entire truck into like a great big uh shrapnel um great big uh, grenade taking him and the superintendent with him uh go ahead so uh they also when the investigators came later and uh, were able to identify uh, kehoe as the culprit here they went to his farm and they had discovered that he had prior to that morning had murdered his wife and then uh, burned her up in a wheelbarrow mm-hmm. so what was kehoe's motive in all this well the the historical motive that is bandied about most often in the secondaries uh, writing about this case was that he was miffed about school taxes and he was worried about losing his farm because he couldn't pay the school taxes and all of them I'm not sure whether that would have been, you know, an adequate motive. I don't think he ever actually talked about motive. I think that was just something that was 
speculated about later on. I, I think that he had gotten up and he was very angry at school board meetings and he was an outspoken critic about the way taxes were done. And I think because of that fact, people pinned that on him, pinned that motive on him. Um, but I, I don't... Seems kind of like a simplistic motive to uh, to trigger the bloodiest school day in U.S. history, but it's anything's possible. Um, he could have just snapped. He could have been a complete sociopath. Hard to say for sure. It's just uh, it, maybe for some people it's a little surprising that uh, somebody like this could own a farm and at least have a job and then uh, at a certain age do something of this magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that there's a lot about human psychology that people don't understand. But what happens is, is when you have a situation like this, people always want to search for a reason. There has to be a motive in this. There has to be some kind of grand reason why somebody would do something like this. It's, it, it, I think it's, I think for people who have lost loved ones in tragedies like this, it also helps that there's motive. Uh, and, and you have, you know, with, with the news media at the time, and that, and that article that I talked about a few minutes ago where they're talking about phrenology, it's, it's got a kind of a grasping at straws kind of feel to it. Right. Like they just don't understand him. And they want to, uh, but you're, we, we might just be dealing with a some element of abnormal psychology that was simply not simply not identified at that point in time. Simply uh, something that they didn't understand. Yeah, people want a, a singular uh, reason. They want a, a single thing they can point out and say that was it, instead of looking at it kind of multifactorial or that's a little too. Uh, that's a little too heady and maybe a little too uh, confusing. Not what people seem to want to hear. Well, you know how that, like with Columbine, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but with Columbine, didn't, didn't they ultimately settle on the fact that the shooters were uh, bullied real badly? That, that was one of the explanations, yeah, that they got bullied uh, and then they, they planned it and took their revenge on, and partly that was based on some tapes that they'd made that they got bullied or something like that, yeah. And and, and, may, and maybe that's what happened. Maybe that's what the motive was. But it, whether it was or whether it wasn't, it, it gave a grander meaning to the tragedy, I think, for people. And that's what I think you see with Kehoe, except it's not, it, it, it may not be that simple with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and it may be really, the, the true answer might be really uncomfortable. Um, it, 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 it's easier to vil, uh, vilify a guy like that and say, well, he just didn't want to pay his school taxes. He's a miserly bugger. You know, he, he snapped it. Um, I read someplace that, or in my research, I read in one of the sources that Andrew Kehoe had, was an electrician by trade, and he had an accident when he was a younger guy out west. I want to say Kansas City or St. Louis. He fell off a ladder and he hit his head. Um, after shocking himself, I think. Mm-hmm. And in my in my research with serial killers, a lot of the serial killers that I've studied over time had some type of a some type of a closed head injury to the frontal lobe region. Uh-huh. And it could very well be that he had some type of a some type of a TBI that affected him in a way that he he became a very mean spirited individual later on. Um, there's a lot of speculation. He beat he beat up I beat a horse to death. I think. Uh-huh. Uh huh. There's um, some speculation that he uh, he murdered a woman years before the the whole bat, um, massacre incident. And so there there may have been. I mean, it, it's hard to say. Again, we're speculating. It's kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking. But there may have actually been a physiological uh, reason why he became what he became. Uh huh. But but again, you have to be careful with explanations like that too, because you know everybody has a TPI doesn't does go haywire like that. Right. Yeah. Right? There's, there's all so kinds it of people. Could just be the right type of in, the wrong type of injury with the wrong type of personality. Yeah. And it may be something we don't understand yet. Yeah. The the right combinations, all these different combinations, came together in just such a way that it resulted in this event. Yeah. Absolutely. Or, or in this individual who was who fathered this event. Right. So, speaking of very unusual events, the the subtle and daring poison plot of Arthur Waite. Yeah, yeah. Waite, Waite is a, a case that I want to make any a 
appearance of any uh, dateable female Blanche, you know, because on the on the outside he looked like the perfect guy, the perfect match. Um, on the inside, he was something much different. And describe the case for us a little bit. Arthur Warren Waite uh, was a native of Grand Rapids who went to University of Michigan Dental School. Mm-hmm. And after he graduated, he went to um, uh, South Africa working for a dental firm called Wellman and Bridgman around World War I, 1914. Um, when the war broke out, he came back. Supposedly, as the story goes, he came back to the United States and set up a dental surgery in New York. Of course, later on, that was happened to be nothing but a fiction uh-huh. that he wasn't licensed to practice dentistry in New York. Uh, but he, uh, according to one of the investigators who worked the case, as soon as he came back to the United States, he went heiress hunting. It was always his uh, desire to get rich quick, and his rich quick scheme was to marry into the, the Peck family of Grand Rapids. That's heiress, uh, that's heiress hunting to find a, a rich it, woman in Heiress hunting, yeah. yeah. An heir to, yeah, a, to a wealthy place, to a wealthy fortune, and just marry her, and you become rich yourself. Yeah, well, and I think that he, he might have, at that point in time, even conjured up the idea of uh, marrying into a wealthy family and then systematically eliminating them so that he could inherit the money. Okay. Okay, so I think that there's some evidence that he was looking at this right way back in when he graduated. I think he graduated in 19... Let's say 1909 for Michigan's uh, dental dental program, and uh-huh. later on when the case broke, it was discovered that they had looked at one of his books, uh, textbooks from dental school, and the pages involving arsenic had been dog-eared and flipped through much more than the rest of the, the book, <sighs> and it was not a big part of the curriculum. They used arsenic to kill nerves, I guess, root right. canal surgery back then. So uh, way back then, he had a fascination with arsenic. Well, why, you know? So that's speculation. So 1915, he marries the daughter of John Peck, who is a a uh, super wealthy, uh, seven-figure fortune, uh, kind of scion of, uh, of Grand Rapids businessman. Mm-hmm. And he starts to acquire bacteria and germ specimens because his plan is to wipe them out by spiking their food with uh, with bacteria, but he can't get it virulent enough. He, it, it, the apartment he lives in isn't a laboratory, so he goes to the old tried and true, and he, he spikes his in-law's food with arsenic. So first he had murdered Hannah Peck, who was the mother-in-law. Then he murdered um, John Peck, the father, and at that point in time his wife was positioned to inherit half of her parents' fortune. She, of course, did not go to the father's uh, at-home funeral because she was already sick. He had already infected her with typhus, mm-hmm. which makes sense because in his scheme, she would, have, she would have had to be the next one to go. He infected her with typhus? Yeah. He used uh, an atomizer nasal spray and uh, infected uh, infected her with typhus. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So uh, they gave her a blood test. She was so sick when she came to Grand Rapids for the at-home funeral, she couldn't leave the hotel. They gave her a blood test. They found uh, typhus. Yeah. Or it was typhus or typhoid. One of the typhus. I'm pretty sure it was typhus. Uh-huh. So they're different, I guess. Right. Things. So I was pretty, pretty sure it was typhus. Uh-huh. And uh, there's even one rumor that he had made, he had uh, designs on murdering her brother and his entire family. Okay. So that his wife then would inherit the whole, the full Monty. Yeah. And he could then uh, go off to Italy with his mistress and, you know, live the life of Riley on the text line. Yeah. If, you, if you're going to go to that much trouble, you might as well wipe out the whole family then. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, his his case is so fascinating because he basically experimented on the people. He had become real, uh, kind of a, kind of a adopted son-in-law of, Aunt Catherine. The, fam- the Peck family was from New York, so some of them had remained behind in New York, and they were pretty well off. Catherine was at, a, I think, a big, a big dwelling in New York City, and um, he used her to experiment with the various germs and things. <laughs> and he was well. And his his plan was, I understand, was to poison her 
because he felt that her fortune, her, she was in testate, she didn't have any children. So I think he believed that when he poisoned her or killed her off, her fortune was going to go to her favorite niece, which was his wife, which was Arthur's wife. So he would have kind of like a double whammy. Now, Catherine survived the event, testified, and the testimony, her testimony is some of the most fascinating testimony in the whole transcript. Mm -hmm. She had said that she had a uh, marmalade that she had loved from a certain deli, mm -hmm. and she sent Arthur to go get some, and when he brought it back, it had sand grit in it. It was gritty to the teeth. Uh -huh. And she took it back to to the delicatessen, and the, the, the deli owner had no idea where the grit could possibly have come from. He was mystified, but it turns out that what Arthur had done was ground up glass and put it in the marmalade. Because uh. he figured that was one way he could get rid of her. Right. Try to spike her food with fecal material. You can let your mind wander as to where that came from. Right. Yeah. So, you know, th this was the type of thing that, that he, he would have done, um, that he did do, actually. Is, is this reminiscent of Rasputin, where they try and poison him in all kinds of different ways and he just won't die? And <laughs> You know, it's kind of got that kind of feel to it. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and the murder of Hannah Peck, she died almost right away, but the murder of John Peck has got that feel to it. And what's really fascinating about this case, there's a lot of fascinating parts of this case, but one of the most fascinating ones is they had him so dead to right that when it came to the trial, he had one chance, one chance only to stay out of the electric chair, and that was to convince the jury that he was insane. Uh-huh. And so... He got up and testified to all these exorbitant attempts to try to murder John Peck, and it's almost certainly exaggerated, but it um, it's our best evidence of what he tried to do. So you have to kind of look and see what's believable, what's what's credible, and what is incredible. Uh -huh. But he said things like he would um, he wet down the boots so that John Peck would catch his cold and that type of thing. You uh -huh. know? At one point in time, the jury, one juror, started laughing because no one was buying it. Uh -huh. So that that also has kind of a Rasputin feel to it, right? So uh, how was uh, how was Waite ultimately caught, and then what was his fate? He was ultimately caught. He uh, he had the body of John Peck embalmed, and he and his wife, who was already sick at this point, and the corpse were headed back on a train to Grand Rapids, and there was a pseudonymous telegram that was sent under the name of K. Adams who incidentally was the name of a one of the most uh, was the name of the victim in one of the city's most famous arsenic poisoning cases that's why that student was chosen that telegram was sent from Grand Central Station by a young woman by the name of Kay Adams who had shown up with an older man um, to send the telegram and the telegram said uh, suspicion aroused stop demand autopsy stop so it was addressed to Percy Peck, who was uh, Clara's brother and John and Hannah's son, uh, also an heir to the fortune. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really like Arthur very much. He'd heard some rumors about Arthur's behavior uh -huh. in college. He was a skirt chaser. He, uh, <laughs> he stole things. and So uh, he got a friend of the family who also happened to be a, a, um, a uh, mortician, meet him at the train and he demand when Arthur came off the train he demanded the baggage checks for the body uh -huh. the mortician takes the body to his shop and they take a look at the stomach and they find a white crystalline powder they take it the stomach out and they send it to Dr. Victor Vaughn who is an expert chemist and kind of a kind of an authority on these things at the University of Michigan and meanwhile they went through and they had the funeral at home they didn't really tell Arthur, that they were going through all of this. Vaughn's report comes back that it's got tons of white arsenic in the stomach, and they start watching Arthur Warren wait. And he, with Clara too sick to travel, he returns to New York and he starts to cover his tracks. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things he tried to do was pay off an embalmer, an absurd amount of money, $50,000, I think, to say that he used an old batch of embalming fluid that contained arsenic, because it was against the law at the time to use arsenic in embalming fluid. And uh, ultimately, he took an overdose. Some people say to commit suicide. Some people say he just accidentally took it. But he gave the first in a series of confessions. Uh -huh. Okay. And uh, he was uh, taken to uh, the electric chair? Yes. Yep. 
he was tried, he was found guilty, and he was electrocuted in Sing Sing nineteen seventeen. Okay. May. May nineteen seventeen, yep. Right. Um that's a fascinating case. I I'm with these kind of psychopathic personalities, it seems like if there's one uh if there's one consistent thing, it's it's consistent lying. Like they just cannot tell the truth. And they're good at it. Yeah. They're real, real good at it. Um, that that is one of the I think that's one of the hallmark characteristics of a sociopath and a and a psychopath is the idea that they're just expert liars and manipulators. From from and an early age. He, yeah, he was just really, really a good liar. Mm-hmm. In fact he was such a good liar that his wife was under the impression that he was a dental surgeon. Right. And he took her he took her to various uh, hospitals. She waited in his car and he'd go in and come back an hour later and he'd tell her that he had done these dental surgeries. She had no idea that he was uh he wasn't licensed to practice anywhere in the state of New York. And when he was out working supposed to be working, he was actually cohabitating with a with a married cabaret dancer at the Plaza Hotel. <laughs> And no one knew this. I mean, it was, they were just, she was, Claire was blown away when she found out about uh, this. So that's a manipulator extraordinaire. To be that smooth of a liar, that there's something about that that is so uh, atypical. I mean, if any of us, I would think, would even try and lie to a tenth of that degree, we'd be a nervous wreck. But And he, scary, how scary it is, you yeah. know, that, that people are out there like that. Right. Well, uh, what does it tell you, uh, like when you examine true crime uh, from the perspective of a historian, what does that tell you? One of the, one of the things that it, it just can't be, it can't be emphasized enough is how history sometimes goes in uh, cycles mm-hmm. and it repeats itself sometimes in some really nauseatingly similar ways. If you look at some of the cases that you know, I've written about over time, or just old historical cases, and you look at MOs and, and reasons for things. These things come up uh, time and time again. And so what it tells me from a historical perspective is that there are lessons to be had in these old crimes that can be applied to crime today. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily like arsenic and strychnine and the way they handled crime schemes. All that's changed. All that's different. Um, we don't deal with phrenology or anything like that anymore. But... The, the human, the human mind, you know, the human mind broken or the human mind that is uh, perverted to do criminal acts. Sometimes you you can find some real parallels there, and I think for me that's probably the biggest takeaway is that we study old crime. And I'm always telling people when I speak speak about this publicly is that it seems like there are crimes. Well, these are crimes from yesteryear, but in many many ways they're echoes that we can hear right to our current day. Mm-hmm. Um, you just pay attention to certain crimes. You know, a woman um, named Amanda Timmons in 1869 takes her three children to the Calvinist River. She drowns them one by one in the river, mm-hmm. right? And you're going to see a very similar type of thing like that happen today. Those type of things happen today. Right. You know, we have psychological reasons for them, you know, uh-huh. explanations for these type of behaviors that wouldn't have applied to Amanda Simmons. But... If you look close enough, you can see some real parallels between those between cases. Right. Uh, why is true crime so popular anyway? And I and I'm as guilty as anyone. Uh, you know, this is criminal behaviorology, and I've I've read a bunch of these books. And but why do you think it's uh, it's it's a popular subject, and it's been a popular subject for a long time? I think it's a gapers block. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same dynamic as a gapers block. I mean, you know what I mean by a gapers block? Uh, you may have to explain that to me. Okay, so, you know, you're driving down the highway, and there's an accident. You're on a divided highway, uh-huh. super highway, and there's an accident on the other side. And traffic slows down, and there's no reason for it to slow down because the accident is on the other side of the median. Uh-huh. So why are people slowing to a stop? Slowing to a stop because they want to see uh-huh. And that's both gapers block because they're gaping at the accident. Right. Why do they want to see an accident? Uh-huh. There's a morbid fascination with it. Mm-hmm. And the morbid fascination might have might be kind of a mirror into what some of our fears. I think people are fascinated by things that make them afraid. Right. That makes any sense. 
Right. So papers blocks make a lot of sense because they're morbidly fascinated. And anybody who goes by one's got to be thinking. Anybody who's configured, uh, I hate to use the word normally, but configured in the right way, I guess, has got to be thinking that, my God, that could be me. Uh-huh. Right? And that's every time you get behind the wheel of a car. I mean, you see these signs on the highway. Oh, my goodness. Is, you know, so many fatal accidents in this month and uh-huh. up from last year. You know what I'm talking about. Right. And people stop because they're morbidly fascinated with that. And I think that's what we have with crime. It's a morbid fascination. It's a, it's a gaper's plot. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I spent all that time in the morgue, and, and I, I saw a kid who was run over. He was, he was killed by a car. He ran across 28th Street, which is a busy thoroughfare here in Grand Rapids, mm-hmm. on a rainy night. And to look at that boy, that 19-year-old, 20-year-old, um, laying there, you know, or the heart attack victim who, who's let his weight go, you know, ate too many, you know, greasy foods, right? You know, mm-hmm. looking, looking at that, I'm thinking, my God, this could be me. Right. Right. I'm one step away from this. But yet, at the, as, as horrific as that is, it's also just magnetically fascinating. Right. So that's kind of what, how I would explain that. People yeah. are really fascinated with that abnormal psychology yeah. and uh, that senior side of the world. It's yeah. it's like you don't want to live with it, though. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. mean, you don't want to, most people don't want to go into a morgue. They don't want to volunteer for an autopsy. They don't want to become part of the crime scene. Unit. They just want to read about it and watch it on TV. Right. There's enough of a psychological distance to watch it on CSI or read a true crime book that, you can be comfortable with it, but still be, uh, still have that gapers block or, you know, interest in the true crime. Oh yeah. And I, and I think that if you were to go, if you were to go to a real bloody crime scene, you know, you could smell the blood. That right. type of thing. You would probably have far, far fewer people that are interested in it yes. because that, that's a firsthand experience just is much, much different than, than doing it by proxy. Yeah. By proxy, people are fascinated. Firsthand, they're, they're horrified. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, you know what I mean? Right. Very much so. Uh, what's your next book going to be about? The book that I just put out. Um, in fact, it's not actually... I think it might actually now be out to the public. I have copies of it that I... Um, so I think it's available. It's called Michi, It's called uh, Pardonable Matricide. Uh-huh. And it's about, it's a gaslight-era crime that took place in Jackson and Detroit. Uh-huh. And it involved an inmate named Robert Irving Latimer, who was so dangerous. He was considered the most dangerous inmate in a Michigan prison. Uh-huh. And he inspired three different conversations, debates really, about whether they wanted to bring a death penalty to Michigan. Uh-huh. Um, pharmacist, and uh, wound up, selling drugs to inmates in the prison, and he walked up a batch of prusic acid, poisoned oh. his way out. Oh. So, really a fascinating case. Oh. I'm going to check that one out for sure. Then. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, called Pardonable, Pardonable Matricide. Pardonable Matricide. Matricide, By yep. Tobin and then Book. there's a uh, big, kind of a big subtitle. Robert, Robert Irving Latimer from... Uh-huh. The most dangerous inmate in Michigan to free man, I think, might okay. be the subtitle. Okay, we'll we'll look it up. Uh, you know, at uh, for uh, at Andrew Kehoe's farm, uh, once he destroyed the farm, and they they came, and he he'd had some kind of a he made a plaque or a thing on a board. It said, uh, "Criminals are made, not born." Not born. Yeah. What do you Isn't think he that- meant by that? That's that he was trying to send a message to the world that something had pushed him into doing this. Right. That's what I think he was saying. Right. You know, if you want it, it could be it could be the school taxes, right? right. It could be something else. Right. Uh, I, I just something about the school taxes to me just seems like a real yeah. uh, flimsy excuse for killing a bunch of children. Right. Right, I mean, I could understand something like that if, the, if his crime was committed against a school board or right. the superintendent itself. But to go after the children like that yeah. seems to me, you know, um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. 
I honestly don't know. I mean, it's tough to speculate, but I think that to answer your question, that's what he was doing. He was telling the world that there was something that pushed him into it. Basically, he was saying, they made me do it. Correct, yeah. yeah. Instead of yeah. him being responsible for it, they made me yeah, do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of those commonalities with criminals, don't you think? I mean, yeah. if you hear enough of them interviewed, they always have, you know, they're innocent, of course, yeah. but, you know, if, if you get any of them that are uh, honest enough to say they did it, they'll, they'll say, well, they made me do it. Yeah, they always Not, abdicate oh. responsibility in one way or another. It seems to be that way, doesn't it? That seems to be one of those parallels that you see. our Facebook page and our blogger page.